We want to continue in worship this morning by turning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So thankful for the opportunity to gather together every time that we have an opportunity to gather together with other believers is a blessing to us. It's a privilege to us. So we praise God for this opportunity, blessing and privilege this morning. And we want to look to his word for his word is good and brings life and truth. And as we've been looking over these last two weeks, really with our Christmas series, we noted that this series is a little bit different than our normal one. We have been through uh, Matthew and Luke over the last couple years, seeing, seeing the, the promises of the prophets fulfilled in Matthew's gospel, hearing that narrative of the, of the shepherds and the wise men in Luke's gospel. And now we've been looking uh, last week in Philippians chapter 2 and this week in Galatians 4 to Paul's epistles, Paul's letters, and where Paul specifically mentions or brings up the coming of Christ. And so we want to see this together this morning because Paul has this way not to focus necessarily on the narrative, if you will, but to speak to the reason or the purpose in Christ's coming and what it accomplished. And so I don't know of another passage like Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, that speaks so clearly to the coming of Jesus Christ, why he came and what he accomplished. And so we want to look together at this. And, and remember, we're kind of, our, our normal plan and, and tendency here is to go through books of the Bible. And so we've been walking through, for example, Acts. And, and you're able at that point to, to remember the context from week to week as we go. So I don't want us just to parachute in here to Galatians 4 without the context of what's going on. And I believe the context sets for us the meaning behind these verses 4 and 5 in Galatians chapter 4. And Paul, in the book of Galatians, is making a fairly technical argument. This is a technical argument to a group here. Now, we want to note a couple things. This letter is written to a group of churches. It says that in chapter 1, Galatia was a region. It was not a city. It was a region in modern-day Turkey, which was there in Asia for Paul. And so Galatia was a region. And these churches, to the churches in Galatia, Paul's writing a letter to all of them, having been affected by some teaching that has come. And now, if you remember these churches, if you go back to the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, these churches were like Lystra and Iconium, places that Paul had gone and established the work of the church and, and set those in motion and placed uh, leadership there, elders there, strengthened them. And so Paul, having established those churches, is receiving word back that the same faction or group that plagued the Antioch church back in Acts 15 have gone, has gone to the churches in Galatia. And the Galatian believers had fallen for the teaching that you need more than just simply belief in Jesus to be saved. If you look back in Galatians chapter 1, you see verse 6, Paul, after greeting them, quickly gets to the point, and he's not mincing any words. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. The gospel that the Galatian believers had turned to was not the same gospel that Paul had preached. You see, this group had come in. 
And they said, sure, it's Jesus, but it's Jesus plus circumcision, the works of the law. It's Jesus plus these other things that lead to salvation. And Paul's fear is that they would believe that untruth, that Jesus plus something else is what's needed. Paul wants to make it clear it is Jesus plus nothing that equals salvation. There is no other thing that we are, it's simply believing in Jesus Christ, trusting him for life and salvation, simply believing in him and you find life. Don't add anything else to it like works or the law. Paul said that's a whole different gospel. So when it comes to the law, he's reminding them. He tells them back in chapter 3, the law is like a guardian or a teacher. In chapter 3, verse 24, that teacher, that guardian, only lets you know that you're a sinner. It can't save you. It, can't, it only teaches you or shows you that you need salvation. It cannot redeem you or save you. You're under the law. You'll only be shown that you're a sinner that needs salvation. Or it says in verse 23 of chapter 3 that you're like a prison warden. The, the law is like a prison warden. You're thrown into slavery, into bondage. So the law only can show you that you need salvation like a teacher. It teaches you that. And then it bondage, puts you in bondage or slavery, as he says. So chapter 4, verse 3, Paul is writing and he says, You were enslaved to the elemental principles of this world. So you are in bondage. You're in slavery to sin by the works of the law, and you are only shown that you need salvation. You cannot save yourself. So why, Paul would say, would we submit ourselves to that again when Christ Jesus has come to set us free? Why would we submit ourselves to the law and put ourselves in slavery to the law again when Christ Jesus has set us free from those things? And so Paul is drawing a contrast. Either you're a slave to sin or an heir to God. Either you're a slave or you're an heir. And how can one go, if we're all under sin and slaves to sin, how can the slave become a member of the family? How can that possibly happen? Because that didn't happen in the first century. That didn't happen in Paul's day. It was never a way for the slave to go to a son. That option was not available. You're either a slave or you are a child in the family, a son in the family. So Paul is going to give an argument that why would you go back to slavery when sonship is offered to you? And how is that sonship offered? How can we go from slavery to sonship we can only go because God sent his son for us that's Galatians 4 so he says you were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons let's pray together Father, we thank you for your word. It is good. We thank you for the, the privilege of worshiping you this morning and singing. Even as we think, Lord, there was a time that you appointed that you sent your son for us. And there is a time that you have appointed that he will return. And so, God, today, as we hear your word, as we look to your word, may we rejoice that Christ came and may we rejoice that he's coming again. And may we prepare our hearts 
to meet him. Father, thank you for Jesus. And the glory of his name be exalted in this place this morning. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Paul here in Galatians 4 lays it out pretty easy for the preacher. He gives six central teachings about the coming of Christ. And so you're hearing that and you're thinking six things. Oh my goodness. This has been the shortest sermon I've preached all year. I promise. Six central teachings here about the coming of Christ. The first four really deal with the qualifications that Christ has to be the Savior. And the last two deal with the purpose for which Christ came and why he came as Savior. And so we'll look at these and walk through these together. And I believe Galatians 4 is a fantastic, a great Christmas text because it is not only what happened 2,000 years ago, explains that, Jesus coming, being born of a woman, being born of the law, but why it happened and for what purpose did he come. And so we'll look at this this morning to see that he came, how he was qualified, and what he has accomplished for us. The first thing this passage teaches us is that Jesus came as the heart of God's plan of redemption. Jesus came as the heart of God's plan for redemption. Paul is writing, he's saying, you're in the error of slave, and you were a slave to your sins. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul is shifting to say, we were all in slavery to our sin, but when the fullness of time had come. Now this phrase, when the fullness of time had come, is a phrase that's loaded with meaning. And throughout history of the church, many pastors, preachers, commentators have, have spoken to this. And I can give just some instances. One that I love who writes on this is, is John Stott, who's writing about the fullness of time and what it means. He says this time that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago had some major, important cultural activities that were happening. For example, just one example, there was this pervasiveness within the Roman Empire of the Greek language itself. How the Greek language, common and universal, went throughout the empire. Therefore, all, because of that, because of this expansion of the Roman Empire, all within it were speaking one language. We notice that if there's ever any confusion, it's by many speaking many languages. I had a, a sweet lady friend, a member of our church came up. Her mother was from Brazil. This is in the previous service. Her mother was from Brazil. And I don't know if y'all have heard, but I'm not from Brazil. And, and so I'm up here speaking, and she's trying to use a translator, and they came out there to me and, and, and laughing and said, man, you used many explicatives in your last sermon. <laughs> I said, well, it wasn't on purpose. Language becomes a barrier, but not during the time of Christ in some sense. The Greek language had become pervasive and universal in many ways, which allowed Paul to go into Asia, to go into Athens, to go in throughout all of the empire and explain or proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus. Culturally, it was that. But you also had politically. Politically, this was during the time of the Roman Empire, what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome had settled in their wars. They had established their boundaries. Their empire was set, and there was peace. And because there was no war going on at the time for them to pursue, they were pursuing other things like road systems that were the most advanced in all of history. So Paul, again, was able to go from Antioch into Galatia, all in through Asia because of the road systems that were advanced. The gospel came to a time when people were speaking basically the same language in that region, and travel was the easiest it had been in centuries, if ever before. But not only that, the gospel came into a religious climate that was ripe for it. 
the idolatry and paganism of, of those around had led to a desire to find something worth meaning, to find some hope. Again, looking back at the book of Acts, you can see this in Athens as they're worshiping every god they can find as Paul is there at the area of Pegasus. And they're even putting up a statue to a god. They say, we, just, we don't even know if he's out there, but, but we want to have a statue just in case. They're doing everything they can to make worship right, but they're hungry and they're longing for it. So in the midst of that, in this religious climate of, of paganism and idolatry, there was a spiritual hunger for some truth and some good news. And in that climate, Jesus came. But not only that, you see the biblical narrative as well. When the fullness of time had come, the Old Testament had, having been complete for us, as we want to put it that way, some 300 prophecies of the coming of the Christ had been made. And, and now, would they be fulfilled becomes the question. But if you remember back in, uh, in the book of Genesis at the end, the God's people had, had gone and they'd gotten to Egypt and, and they were there and God had spoken to his people and gotten them to Egypt in that place. But then from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus is 400 years, 400 years without God speaking, 400 years without a prophet, 400 years without any revelation, 400 years until God sends his deliverer to them Moses and he speaks again well at the end of the Old Testament at the end of the time of prophets it was 400 years until the coming of Christ a time of 400 years where there was no revelation where there was no voice where there wasn't a time matching even that you're in the bondage in Egypt and now you're in the bondage in your slavery to sin and they didn't send Moses back this time he sent one who was greater than Moses Jesus Christ himself in the full revelation of God's word, it was just the right time to send the Messiah into this place. In the first century, the father would be the one who determined when he would give the inheritance to the son. It wasn't always just upon their death. Many times a father would like to retire, if you will, and he would pass on his inheritance to his firstborn son at that time. In fact, it tells us this up in verse 2. He's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so ultimately what we see when the fullness of time had come had been the time that God had determined it was time to give his son his inheritance, to send him forth. It was that time. When we consider all of these things and what the fullness of time means, we need to remember something. God does not and was not reacting to anything at this point. He's not reacting in such a way as to say, oh, it's a good thing that Rome has sought peace. He's not going, shoo, I was hoping they would get there. He's not saying, oh, it's a good thing that, that the Greek language is pervasive. He's not just simply reacting to all of these things. Is Things are. He's the sovereign God of the universe who is not reacting to history, but he is orchestrating history. He's bringing it about into a certain place, into a certain time, to a specific point so that he may bring about redemption for all those who would believe. You see, God has a plan. From the moment of Genesis 3, the moment that sin entered in, his plan kicked into gear that would bring about salvation for his people and takes us to the cross, which is Christ. All of this was in God's plan. And when the fullness of time had come, God sends forth his son. He's orchestrated all of history to bring about the salvation of his people. And for that, we praise him. For that, we thank him that God has orchestrated things in such a way to save us and redeem us, which leads to the next point. 
Jesus came in obedience to his father. In the fullness of time, it says, God sent forth his son. This verse here of God sending forth his son speaks to the deity of Jesus. He is the one who is sent. Meaning, as we saw last week, Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem. In fact, there was never a time when he was not. Jesus is co-eternal and he is co-equal with the Father, the second person of the Trinity. He has always been and will always be. So he did not make his first appearance in the manger in Bethlehem. He is eternal and the Father at just the right time said to the Son, now it's time to go. He sends him down. This speaks to the deity of Christ. He is God himself, the deity of Christ. Now, why does it use the language of son or sonship? Why does Colossians 1 say he's the firstborn of all creation? When we're saying Jesus was never born, he was always has been, he's eternal. Because that's not speaking about birth. It's not speaking about what we traditionally hold to that verse when we see son. What it's speaking about is his position and preeminence over all creation. You see, the firstborn son is the one who receives all the inheritance of, of creation, all the inheritance of the father. So it's Jesus. He's the firstborn son. He's the one who receives all the inheritance. He's the one who receives all that the father would give comes to him. Comes to him. So he's the son, only begotten by God, sent down to redeem his people, fully God. But not only that, it says, he's sent, speaking to his mission, to the plan of God. Jesus came by taking on flesh. Jesus came being sent by God in obedience to the Father, and Jesus came by taking on flesh. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. The idea of incarnation means becoming flesh. Carne meaning flesh. Becoming flesh. God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became flesh, incarnate, to dwell amongst his people. And there's no better way to put this than to say he was born of woman. He became just like us, born of woman. This invokes for us the Christmas scene, doesn't it? It invokes Mary there at, at the manger. It invokes the, the shepherds. It invokes the wise men. It invokes all of this when we think that he was born of woman. He was sent by God. God sends his son, which speaks to his eternal deity. And he was born, which declares to his true humanity. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And the way he teaches us, it simply says he was born of woman. Now, Patton and I were riding in the car this week, and Patton has been learning his songs, you know, Christmas songs. I love Christmas songs. So he knows a lot more verses than I do because he's younger and I've forgotten stuff. And we get to sing in the third verse of Away in a Manger. And I got to thinking about it, right? Y'all know that verse? He kicks it off. The cattle are lowing. Y'all know what that means? They're making a bunch of racket, right? The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now I started thinking about that, and that's hogwash. <laughs> Have you ever awakened a baby from a nap and seen what happens? The idea, I understand. What, I, by the way, I love away in a manger. Don't cancel me because of this. But the idea that a baby who's awakened by some animal or some ruckus or something out of a deep sleep will just smile and be happy with it? 
You see, it gives us this idea that Jesus was different from us, but he was not. And as Andrew Peterson wrote in his masterpiece, Behold the Lamb, this was not a silent night that he was born. How many of you in this room have been born of woman? Raise your hand. And how many of you love your mom? Raise your hand. Good. We see how this works. In fact, what the scriptures is teaching us is Jesus became just like us all the way back to his birth, just like us in every way. His birth was just like ours. And I don't know if you've been to a birth lately, but it's not a silent night, right? <laughs> it was just like ours. Hebrews 2 tells us, since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Flesh and blood. Or 2.17, Hebrews 2.17, he was made to be like his brothers in every respect. He's fully God, but he was born of a woman. Fully God, God himself, and fully man. And because of this, he became like us in every respect, in every way, flesh and blood. Born just like we were into this world. Because of this, he is uniquely qualified to become the savior of those who believe in him. You see, Jesus is not 50-50 when it comes to the union between God and man. Jesus is 100%, 100%. Fully God and fully man the same time and that uniquely makes him qualified to become the one who will bridge the gap between God and man that sin has created but sin is created but more than just being human more than being fully God and fully man Jesus would also reverse the curse which brings me to the fourth point Jesus came to bear the curse of the law not only was he fully God and fully man that made him equipped and qualified to fulfill the, the promise to bring together, to reconcile God and man together, but he was also the one who reversed the curse of the law. It says that he was born of woman, born under the law. Born under the law. Just like me and you are born under the law and the obligation to keep God's law, so was Jesus. Understand that God created this world. He made it. He fashioned it. He spoke it out of nothing. This is his world, and we are just living in it. Therefore, he gets to set the rules and the standards by which we are to be judged. And God has set up his law in such a way to say, this is the rule, and this is the standard. But when we look to God's law, all of us must are obligated to keep it, and none of us have. In fact, all have sinned, which is the very definition of sin. We have broken the law of God. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory, and therefore we bear the curse of sin, which is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory, and the wages of sin is death. This is the curse that looms over us. The obligation we have is to keep God's law. It's the same obligation Jesus was born under. But unlike us, who broke God's law, who sinned against him, he kept it perfectly. He kept it perfectly. How did he keep it? Through his obedience. His active obedience. In his active obedience, it speaks to his perfect obedience in keeping God's law. Everything that God commanded, Jesus kept and was faithful. He was obedient in all things. In other words, Jesus never sinned. He didn't sin in his actions. He didn't sin in his thoughts. He didn't sin in any way. Not even his, his, his reasoning behind it. Not in any way did he sin. Jesus never sinned. 
Not in acts of commission or omission. He never sinned. He was the perfect lamb of God, the scripture says to us. His act of obedience means he kept God's law. But not only that, we see his act of obedience and we add that to his passive obedience. In his passive obedience, not only did he keep God's law actively, but in his passive obedience, he paid the penalty for our failure to obey God's law. His passive obedience is seen in the very fact that he goes to the cross and no one can take his life. He willingly laid it down in obedience to the Father so that he may redeem his people from their sins. He was obedient in every way, perfectly obedient. In Galatians 3 it says, verse 12, the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse speaks to Genesis chapter 3 when the first rebellion occurred in the garden and the Lord pronounced the curse there. And because of that curse that came we see how the peace that was between man and God was broken the peace that was between man and woman was lost the peace that was between man and the earth was lost there is no peace anymore after Genesis chapter 3 it only can be found in God and the one who would bring it the Lord says in that in that curse he says you're going to fight for your life every day You're going to get up and you're going to work by the sweat of your brow and the toil of your back and you're going to fight for every piece of bread you ever get every single day. You're going to fight the thorns, you're going to fight the thistles, you're going to fight the gnats and mosquitoes and all that other stuff. You're going to fight against it just to survive and guess what? You will lose for dust you came to dust you shall return. The wages of that sin, that rebellion was death. You will lose all of creation feels it. As the song, O oh, Holy Night, says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. All of creation feels the effects of the curse. 1719, Isaac Watts wrote a song that we still sing at Christmas. The third verse, hopefully you get to the third verses. The third verse says, No more let sins and sorrows grow. No thorns infest the ground. He comes to make blessings flow far as the curse is found. Song is joy to the world. The great joy that we have is that Christ Jesus has come to do away with sin and to do away with sorrow. Christ Jesus has come to reverse the curse that came because of sin. Even on this world, while all creation is groaning, Christ Jesus brings the joy that we long for that has been lost. Joy to the world. As far as the curse is found, joy is here because of Christ. Jesus kept the whole law for his people and suffered the punishment that was due his people because they did not keep the law. The last two points in this passage serve to tell us the purpose. It's a twofold reason for Jesus coming. Jesus came to redeem his people. He came to redeem his people. Think of all these things we've said. It's in the full plan of God Jesus came. 
All of redemptive history is fulfilled in the coming of Christ Jesus. He came as fully God. The divinity of Christ is seen. He came as fully man. The humanity of Christ is known. He came with the righteousness that only he could bring. When we were all unrighteous, he came as one who is righteous. And there will be no unrighteous people in heaven. Only righteous people will be saved. Only righteous people will be brought into the family. And so we get our righteousness not from our own works that we could never accomplish on our own. Not from us keeping the law because we never could. It's just a guardian and it puts us in jail and slavery. We get our righteousness from the one who died for us and gave us his own righteousness. We get it from him. And now we are free to come in because he has purchased our redemption. He has saved us from our sins. All of this, the plan of God, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, all of this uniquely qualifies Christ and no other. There's not another Jesus. There's no other Christ. There's no other Savior. Only he was uniquely qualified to redeem his people from their sin. And give them freedom. Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Slavery puts us in bondage. Sin puts us in bondage, in slavery. Christ comes to set us free. The answer to those who are in slavery and bondage to sin is death. There is no inheritance there. But for those who are in Christ, he came to free us, redeem us, purchase us out of the prison of sin. Now here's the good part. He didn't just bring us out of the prison of sin, the slavery to sin, and leave us. Like if someone was in jail and and we went and got them out and said, all right, have fun. We got you out, now it's done. In fact, Christ did something even greater. He redeemed us from the slavery and bondage of sin so that he may adopt us into his family. Not just leaving us to ourselves, but bringing us into his own family. He atoned for our sins so that he may adopt us for his glory and for his name. Jesus came to adopt us into his family. As it says, he redeems us from under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, this is the main point, I think, of the gospel. This is the culmination of all of God's word. God's word is teaching us that he didn't just save us and leave us. He didn't just call us out and dip on us. No, God came to us, saved us, redeemed us so that he may be with us. Do y'all notice how the book of Revelation ends? It ends with God's people redeemed with God forever in glory. He saved us so that he could be with us. And he says, I'm going to take you out of the slavery and bondage to sin. And I'm going to do more than just free you from that. I'm going to free you from that, but I'm going to adopt you into my family. There's no more radical truth in all of Scripture than we who are sinners can say, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We who were lost and undone outside of the family of God, outside of the promises of God, have can be brought into that truth so that we can cry out, even as verse 5 and 6 tell us, we can cry out, Abba, Father, 
and he hears us. How can a slave go to a son? It's only through Jesus who came, the qualified Savior, to redeem us and save us. When he says, so that we may receive adoption as sons, I need you to know that he's not just speaking to the men in here right now. You may think, what about the ladies? When he says this, he's speaking again of inheritance. The only ones in the first century, the only ones the Galatians would have understood, the only ones that could receive inheritance from the father were the sons. And so Paul is writing this to a mixed company, both men and women. And what he's saying to the men and the women is you will receive adoption as sons. In other words, you will have full rights to the glorious inheritance that belongs to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. It will not be withheld from anybody. All of us will receive it. That's why Paul would say there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Paul is not breaking down distinctions that are clear to us in that passage. Paul is saying the inheritance that is God inheritance undefiled kept for you unfading forever is everyone's no one is just out no one is left out but all who trust in Christ receive the full inheritance as sons receive the full inheritance the wages of our rebellion and sin is death but the gift of God is an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, and eternal for all those who believe in him. How can we go from slavery to sin to sonship in the family of God with a full inheritance? It's only because God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us. You see, Christmas time speaks of the powerful glory of a God who pursued after his people and did everything needed, everything needed to bring life and salvation to us all. There's nothing left for us to do but believe in his name. And we have everlasting life and an inheritance that is kept for us for glory. There's no reason for any of us in this room today to remain in the bondage of sin. Christ Jesus has come to set you free. And if you remain in the bondage of sin, it is only because of your own pride. That you think you can get yourself out of this. That you think you can talk yourself past the guards, if you will. But no one, no one can talk themselves out before a holy and just God who sweeps no sin under the rug, who allows no sin to go unpunished, either you will face it for eternity, the punishment of God, or you will proclaim today that Christ Jesus has paid it for me and he set me free. Don't remain in the bondage of sin. Look to Christ who can set you free. Don't think you're unwanted. Christ came to adopt you into his family. Don't think there's nothing left for you. This world has nothing to offer, sure. But our inheritance, 
Our glory is kept in heaven, not here. And that is available to us all in Christ. Don't think that salvation can't be yours. For Jesus was born 2,000 years ago to bring you salvation and set you free. Look to the one who came for you, who died for you, who reigns now. Look to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ and thank you for the glory of his name. That God, today we exalt Jesus and no other. Today we look to Christ in no other direction. Father, let none in this place remain in the bondage of sin. But may today they admit that the law has only showed them they're needing a Savior. Today, may they believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior who has come from them. And today, may they confess that He is Lord. Lord, not only of all creation, but Lord of their life. God, if anyone is here that needs to do just that, work now in their hearts. Even as we stand here ready to receive them, work now in their hearts. All for your glory and all for your name, we pray. Let's stand together and sing.